Let's praise God for Christ Jesus, and that song is the theme of our verses today from Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That's God's word today for God's people. You may be seated and let's pray once again and ask for God's help. Father, where else can we go for you alone have the words of life? And so we pray that you would feed us from your word, show us Christ. What we are not, would you make us more? What we don't have, would you give us? What we don't know, would you teach us today so that we might be your people living with you in the power through the presence of your Holy Spirit for your glory alone, we pray. Amen. Uh, Becky and I enjoy uh, great documentaries, and one of the most fascinating in recent years is Free Solo, about mountain climber Alex Alex Honnold and his attempt to be the first person to free solo, uh, which is climbing without ropes or support. Uh, the first person in history to free solo El Capitan's 3,000-foot mountain face in Yosemite National Park. And it's a remarkable documentary in many ways, and it draws you in from the beginning as you see this man on the face of a rock. And no, it's never been done before for very good reason, because the slightest mistake means death. And one portion of the climb is basically vertical uh, and is described as walking up glass, which I've never done but sounds pretty difficult especially when you're 3,000 feet up. Uh, And it can only be done by getting as much of your shoe on the face of the rock as possible. They call it smearing. So smearing your toes against this glass-like rock. Maintain perfect balance and then don't stop. Not to take a breath, not to make sure your holds are good. You have to keep moving because you have to maintain friction or you'll slip. In the infamous section of the climb, if you've watched it, uh, you know its name. It's called the boulder problem, where you have to get around this very difficult part. And you can only do so by grabbing a pea-sized rock edge with your thumb. Just, just not your hand, your thumb. Uh, and then you step over onto just a small, a pea-sized rock edge beneath you, And then you switch your left thumb to your right thumb and then karate kick your head up onto another vertical wall, all while just maintaining friction to hold you up at 1,700 feet. Now, I can't really do it justice. Uh, You have to see it to believe it. Uh, But it's not just the climbing that makes the documentary. Uh, It's the glimpse, glimpse into Alex Honnold himself and what drives him to attempt climbs like this. And they go back into his story a little bit, and you see a physically and emotionally isolated child who starts so low climbing uh, because he's too scared to ask someone to hold a rope for him. His father died when he was very young, and his mother's favorite sayings were, almost doesn't count, and good 
isn't enough. And so Alex says, no matter how well I do I ever do at anything, it's not that good. The bottomless pit of self-loathing, definitely the motivation for some soloing. And he also says this later in the documentary. There's a satisfaction, he says, in challenging yourself and doing something well. That feeling is heightened when you're for sure facing death. You can't make a mistake. If you're seeking perfection, free soloing is as close as you can get. And it does feel good to feel perfect, like for a brief moment. Brief because you have to keep it up brief because you can never rest. There's always a way to improve. He could free solo El Capitan faster. He could get through the boulder problem quicker. He could smear his toes better, beat his own record. There's always ways to improve. There's always more to achieve as each day dawns. Perfection is always a briefest feeling, uh, moments of feeling good because it never lasts. Each new day means you have to prove yourself again. And there's a mountain that's been looming in the letter to the Galatians. It's known as the works of the law. Its summit is justification, being declared righteous or uh, not guilty before God for your sins and receiving the blessing of salvation. And the question is, how do you reach the top? How do you get to the top of this mountain? And the false teachers in Galatia proclaimed that it was by adding to faith in Jesus works of the law. Jesus did his part, now you must do yours, and don't make the slightest mistake. Now, Paul says there's only one way to reach the mountain summit, and it's not by your doing, but by hearing with faith, hearing with faith in Jesus. And so I have two main points today for our time in these verses. First, the unclimbable mountain, the unclimbable mountain, and secondly, the mountain climbed. The unclimbable mountain and the mountain climb. So first, the unclimbable mountain. Look at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. That word that begins verse 10, for, links us all the way back to Paul's start of his argument in chapter 3. It links back to verses 1 to 9. Those verses proclaim the only way of salvation is by faith alone in Jesus alone. This way of salvation extends to all nations, and it's the only way of true blessing. It's the only way to get what they all want, no matter and in spite of what the Judaizers are saying. God's saving purposes, Paul then argues, have always been grace alone through faith alone. And he points us back to Abraham. That is evident in the life of Abraham. Abraham heard God's promise and believed, and then God counted him righteous. Abraham didn't believe, get circumcised, and then was counted righteous. No. He heard with faith and was counted righteous apart from works of the law. Two chapters before God even instituted circumcision. And so like Abraham, the man of faith that we see there in verse 9, God justifies people of faith not people of works. And that's the contrast that starts us off in verse 10. It's a contrast that basically is asking you the question, what kind of person are you? What kind of person are you? Are you like Abraham, a person of faith? Or are you a person of works? If you're of faith, then God's blessing is yours. But 
if you're of works, then you're under a curse. And Paul gets to that point with the word rely. The word rely in verse 10 means confidence or trust. You're relying on that chair not to drop you onto the ground right now. You're an of chair kind of person right now, right? When you stand up, you're an of my knees and hips kind of person, right? You, you, that's, it, it's a kind of reliance that classifies you. It defines you. It, it tells us the kind of person you are. What you rely on is who you truly are. You've heard the phrase, you are what you eat, right? Well, you are what you rely on. That's Paul's point in verse 10. If you rely on your ability as the basis, as your hope, your trust, your confidence, your ability to earn righteousness before God, then you're under a curse. And the theme of blessing and curse might sound weird to our modern ears, but it wouldn't have been weird uh, to the original readers. And the theme of blessing and curse runs throughout the Old Testament. And Deuteronomy is particularly in view here. Paul quotes it several times in our verses. After God saves them from Egypt and he gives them the law, he pronounces blessings for those who keep it and curses for those who don't. As Deuteronomy 30 says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. So there's the blessing and curse. Blessing life, curse death. All right? If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Now the point isn't, We'll, and we'll see this, but we must say it at the beginning. The point isn't that they need to uh, do these things in order to uh, earn life, earn blessing. That's going to be Paul's whole point. So don't get caught up there at the beginning. Paul says, uh, therefore choose, or excuse me, Moses says, therefore choose life. Those who do the law are blessed with life. Those who don't are cursed with death. Choose life. It seems pretty evident. But that's the point. They couldn't do it. That's the rest of the story of the Old Testament. They can't do it. And so Paul uses this in Galatians 3 to prove that relying on your ability to be counted righteous by God is attempting to climb an unclimbable mountain. It's setting before us something that we can't do. That's why Paul uses Deuteronomy here in Galatians 3. And so he gives us three reasons. If you're a note taker, there's three points under the unclimbable mountain. First, it's unclimbable because you must obey the law perfectly. You must obey the law perfectly. You can't make the slightest mistake. You can't ever stop. There's no rest. You must be perfect. That's how verse 10 ends with, For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide, obey, do all the things written in the book of the law and do them. If you rely on works, if you're an of works person, you're required to do everything in the law, always, every moment, 
And it's not even a moment. That's, that's the problem with the law. It's milliseconds. You can't ever not do it. Like in between breaths, you have to be perfectly doing everything required in the law. And Paul's unstated premise in verse 10 is that no one can do it. That's why he quotes Deuteronomy and points us all the way back to that story. They, they couldn't do it. Not doing everything in the law means curse. This is Paul's argument in verse 10. No one is able to do that. That's that unstated promise, uh, premise. Therefore, verse 10 ends with, everyone relying on their works to justify them doesn't find blessing but curse. Attempting to climb the mountain be, uh, by your righteousness and for your righteousness ends in death because it's impossible. It's an unclimbable mountain. And, and we teach this early on, even here at Five Points, uh, in our New City Catechism. Uh, listen to question seven. What does the law of God require? Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. You can't make the tiniest mistake. That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love our neighbor as ourselves. What God forbids should never be done. And what God commands should always be done perfectly, you personally, and perpetually, all the time. You can't stop. You can't take a break. There's no day off. There's no moments off. There's no milliseconds off. Perfect, personal, perpetual obedience all the time. That's what's demanded in God's law. It's like being on the face of El Capitan, without ropes or any support equipment, no help, no, no big pillow at the bottom of the mountain, death. All the time, making the tiniest mistakes means death. And so relying on what you do as the basis, as the basis, that's going to be a key word throughout the sermon today. Do not forget, basis. Relying on what you do as the basis, the foundation, the grounds of being right with God is to choose death. Verse 10 allows no margin of error. Personal. It means you're required, it's on you, to be perfect and perpetually obedient is demanded, and that is impossible for anyone to achieve. So that is the unclimbable mountain. Not only that, secondly, it's unclimbable because it wasn't planned for sinners to climb. That's a lot of bad news. Here's some good news. It's unclimbable because it was never planned for you to climb. Look at verse 11. Now, it is evident, clear, that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, this is similar language to verse 1. Remember when he was calling them not very nice names that I probably shouldn't say again in a sermon? You know, he called them foolish. We'll, we'll just use that word. You're, you're foolish. It's the same type of tone here when he calls them foolish. It's clear. It's evident. What's wrong with you? Who's, what's bewitched you? It's clear. No one is justified before God because God never planned for sinners to be justified by works. The mountain wasn't supposed to be climbed as the basis. It wasn't supposed to be climbed for us to earn righteousness. And that's why Paul quotes Habakkuk 2. He says, hey, we already went to Abraham, but let me show you. This isn't just a one-off in the Old Testament. This is in the Minor Prophets too. Habakkuk 2.4, for the righteous shall live by faith. 
And we went through Habakkuk, uh, I don't remember now, ago, we went ago, in the past, right? Uh, It wasn't months, but weeks. No, that's the wrong way. Years? I don't know. Anyways, Habakkuk 2, right? And if you remember, Habakkuk has got this lament to God because he is lamenting that God is using a more evil nation to bring his justice upon his own people. And so he's going back and forth with the Lord. And then Habakkuk 2, we hear, the righteous shall live by his faith. And Habakkuk 2, then, is this contrast between the proud and self-sufficient and the humble faithful. That's the contrast set up. The proud and self-sufficient are puffed up, we read in Habakkuk 2. They are unrighteous. And so even if they are means right now of God's judgment, ultimately they're destined to die because of their pride, their self-sufficiency. But God says, those of faith who trust in me will live. It's not your doing, it's their trust in God. And that leads to life. So you see what Paul is saying is the the law was never planned, even in the Old Testament, as a way to earn righteousness, as the basis for salvation. It's not that the Old Testament was law, and that didn't work really well, so then God calls an audible in the years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and all of a sudden the age of grace dawns in the New Testament, that the New Testament is now faith. Paul says, no, that, that is that you're not understanding the Old Testament scriptures who point to the God of grace and faith. He hasn't changed. Faith has always been God's plan as the path of life. He says that's evident. It's clear from Abraham. It's evident in the prophets. No one will ever be justified by relying on themselves. You can't do it. It's unclimbable. Not because you don't have the skill. I can't climb El Capitan. I couldn't get 30 feet up that mountaintop before I'm falling. I probably wouldn't die, but I bet I would really, really be hurting. And then my wife would say, oh, foolish JJ, what bewitched you, right? (laughs) What were you thinking, right? But it's not just that I can't do it. Because if you watch that documentary, man, he plans, he's meticulous, he eats like a bird, you know, he doesn't eat anything bad. His, he's got, I mean, he's, you're holding yourself up like this, 1,700 feet. I mean, you're pretty, he, he works at it. There is no working this, because you can't do it. And it was never planned to. If you've ever gone skiing, think of it this way. Um, some of you are skiers. I am also not a skier because just like uh, that, I couldn't get 30 feet down a slope without rolling the rest of the way. But some of you are skiers. And if you know, I've been skiing. So at the top of the hill, I'm like, where's the colors? Green, blue, black, I'm taking blue, all right? I want to get down and have a nice hot cup of cocoa in the lodge. That's what I like about skiing, the hot chocolate in the lodge, not the skiing, all right? But some of you are like, let's go the black diamonds because those are the expert, right? And there's even double black diamonds. Not, they're not, if you see a bl- double black diamond in Michigan, it's not real. You got to go to like Colorado to find a real double black diamond. And probably even a black, there's no black diamond at Mount Holly or Pine Knob, I'm sorry, okay? You got to go to like a mountain to get to them. But they are doable for the most expert skiers in the world. Now think of it this way. Verse 11 doesn't classify the mountain of law and the root of self-reliance with black diamonds. 
Like, just be careful. This is for the most expert and prepared. The root is classified with skulls and crossbones. It's death. You can't do it. It's not planned for you to do it. Don't go this way. It's not just that it's really, really difficult, and it'll take expert skill and navigation to make it alive safely, so buckle up, but rather no one can make it alive this way because not only is personal and perpetual perfection demanded, it was never planned as the way for sinners to receive life. The basis, again, the law as the basis for justification ends in death, skulls and crossbones. It's the path of curse and death, not blessing and life, because God's law was never God's route for sinners to be justified. And that leads us into third reason it's unclimbable. So we have, you must obey it perfectly. It was never God's plan to, for sinners to climb. And thirdly, it's unclimbable because law and faith are mutually exclusive. Law and faith are mutually exclusive. Look at verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. The one who does them shall live by them. Now, you know how um, some people say they're both Michigan and Michigan State fans? You know, you're like, I'm from Michigan. I like them both. You know, that's possible. No. <laughs> no. I mean, you know, right? You know. You, no. You want them to lose all the time. You hope it burns down, you know. You know why? Because fan is short for fanatic. You can't do both. It's either or. If you say you're a fan of both, it just proves you're not a fan of either. You don't know what you're talking about. You can't do it. It's impossible. It's all or nothing. And Paul is in the same way, right? Paul walks up to the Judaizers who have the house divided shirts on, you know, like Michigan, Michigan State, you know, like law and Jesus, faith and works. He's like, that doesn't work. That's stupid. Don't be foolish. Stop being an idiot. You can't do it. They, it doesn't work. It's impossible to rely on both. It's all or nothing. It's a law shirt or a Jesus shirt. You can't be both. And we see that in the phrase live by them live by them which means paul is paul is saying faith and life or excuse me uh faith and works are ways of life they're ways of living you can't be a person of faith and of law they are mutually exclusive because you can't be self-sufficient and at the same time humbly needy do you see what he's doing? You can't be a person who says, I can do it, staring up at the unclimbable mountain, say, I'm going to work my way up there, I can do it. You can't be that kind of person and at the same time say, I can't do it. And even if I could do it, I couldn't achieve it personally, perfectly, perpetually. I'm going to get somewhere and not do it right. I'm going to do somewhere and make a tiny mistake. I can't achieve it even if I try. You can't be a person who says both. I can and I can't. God's plan to save sinners by faith is mutually exclusive from the way of works. And so, brothers and sisters, this is vitally important. 
Uh, I, I went to seminary, and, you know, there was afternoons where guys are talking about minute theological debates where I'm like, the regular church person on a Tuesday afternoon who's got, you know, the mountains of life and the depths of life in their view are not worried about what so-and-so said in 1782 compared to what so-and-so said in 1492 and whether or not these little things... Now, those matter. I'm not saying theology doesn't matter. What I'm saying is there are debates that really, in the end, don't change a whole lot of things. This is not one of them. The gospel is a matter of life and death. That has bearing on every moment of your life. So you must have clarity on the true gospel because that clarity and knowing what kind of person you are is a matter of life and death. All of you are of something right now. You are of faith or of works. You're relying either on faith or on works. That's Paul's point. That reliance is a matter of life and death. Are you relying on your thumb, on the pea-sized rock of the cliff edge? Or are you relying on Jesus? Now I'm skipping ahead and getting to the verses 13 and 14, but you've got to forgive me for a second. What kind of person are you? That's a matter of life and death. And before you answer, if you're a person of faith or of works, and just say, okay, I can tune out for a couple minutes while he goes on about this, before you tune me out and before you answer that question, remember... The Judaizers didn't object to faith in Jesus. They didn't. They didn't try to dissuade them from putting faith in Jesus. They objected to faith alone in Jesus alone. And that's a subtle difference. They didn't say anything about Jesus. They didn't attack his sufficiency uh, straight on. They just were trying to sneak in the back. They didn't object to it. They just objected to it alone. So we here in our Reformation kind of uh, waters have our T's crossed and our I's dotted when it comes to this theology of salvation. We all too easily, uh, though, can breathe in deeply the air of achievement of our day and live as if our performance earns us God's favor. That's one of the reasons why free solo is so fascinating. It's a picture into our world. That you are what you achieve. And if you're not, then you're nothing. And that air that we breathe can seep into our relationship and our walk with our Father. Yes, my faith is in Jesus, but God's blessing comes my way and it stays upon me or stays with me based on how I do this week, based on how much I read my Bible or pray, based on if I do what the pastor said at the beginning of the service and go out there and get one of those flip books and start memorizing scripture and praying for missionaries and how much I don't skip weeks doing that or how much I give or how much I serve or God's blessing and his favor stays with me or comes my way depending on the depth and length of my sorrow when I don't measure up do you know what I mean I've used that phrase before, like, it's evangelical penance. None of you would say that you believe in penance. But then how many of you, after you fall and sin and fail, 
wonder if God's going to forgive you and if, and if it has to do with how sorry you really feel or how long you, you stay in the depths of self-wallowing and pity, how much you have to flog yourself to make yourself feel bad. And it's how many lashes you give based, is, is equivalent to how much God's blessing he's going to give you. Now, you can sing from the tops of your lungs on Sunday, yet not I, but Christ in me. And but by Monday afternoon, your theme song, it's all me. And the, the way we get there is because we get things out of order. We get things out of order. You see, Paul isn't saying that the law has no purpose. That's swinging the pendulum the other way. That's antinomianism. Paul's not saying the law has no purpose or no bearing upon the Christian. He's going to get to that next Sunday in some of our verses, and he's going to talk about the law of Christ in Galatians 6. So he's not saying it has no uh, purpose or bearing upon the Christian. It's that the law has no bearing as the basis of you being justified, of you receiving blessing and life. The order isn't commands, then salvation. But salvation then commands. The order is not, let me say that, is not. You do, and then God saves. But God saves, and then you do. That's the order in the Old Testament. That's Abraham. That's why he brought it up. God came. God proclaimed. God gave grace. Grace is faith alone. Then counted righteous. Then came all the stuff. All the ordinances and the commands. That's what happened in the Exodus. God saved them by the blood of the Lamb, and then they went out. Then he gave them the law. But it's not just in the Old Testament. It's the New Testament order as well. Like the great letter to the Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, grace. Chapters 4 to 6, what's it start with? Therefore, walk worthy. Grace, then command. Grace doesn't free you to live however you want. It frees you from sin. Now, that doesn't mean you'll never sin. It means you're free from the enslavement to it. You're no longer enslaved. Do you know why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in you. You are a temple of the living God. You've received the Holy Spirit. That's Paul's point there in the first verses of chapter 3. That Holy Spirit fuels the it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me kind of life that he talks about at the end of Galatians 2. All these themes are coming together here as Paul is arguing his point. So while the ceremonial laws are no longer enforced because Christ fulfilled them, the moral law still is. The moral law still is. And we'll get, again, more into this. But God has ordered the world in certain ways. But the moral law is still not the basis of your blessing. It's not the basis of your salvation. It's not the basis of your favor or justification of, uh, before God. But as the way we live because of our justification. You see that? It's the order that matters. It's not do, then declared righteous, but declared righteous, then do. It's because God has saved you, so then walk it out. Abraham, right? That's the whole point. It wasn't do and then righteousness, but God spoke in granting grace to hear with faith and then life with God. That's the order. 
an order which impacts every moment of every day. Because God's commands don't save you or earn you blessing. God's commands are what saved people do. It's how you walk with the one who saved you. Walk worthy of the calling to which you've received. God's commands aren't the way to live in order to be counted righteous, but the way God's counted righteous people live. All right, you see that? It's the order that matters. We've been building uh, Legos again around our house. And if you know anything about Legos, the order matters. If you want to get something that looks remotely like the thing on the front of the box, you got to do the steps. If you accidentally skip steps, or when you turn the instruction booklet, you turn two pages instead of just one, you'll inevitably come to a point where you're like, well, this isn't coming together. And you realize you got out of whack somewhere, and you start tearing things apart to get back to the point where you veered off. The thing with Legos is it's only a waste of time. And maybe not even that if you really like Legos. You're like, whew, here's some more building time. But when it comes to faith and works, the order is a matter of life and death. And I'm preaching to myself here because this has been one of those weeks where the Holy Spirit has really been working on me. I mean, I want to preach the gospel well and communicate clearly, but what I do isn't the basis of my favor with God. Now, it matters. I can't just get up here willy-nilly and say whatever I want and just be like, Martin Lloyd-Jones once said he'd rather preach undressed than unprepared. That would be freaky, right? <laughs> and he says that because it's true. Like, what I say matters, and I'll be judged more strictly based on the words coming out of my mouth. That's why half the time on Thursdays, I've told some of you this, my week goes, I'm doing, you know, phew, praising the Lord, been a great Sunday with God's people, here we go. I start working Tuesday, Wednesday on the sermon. By Thursday, I'm like, I need to go get another job because this is, I can't get up there on Sunday. I'm too close to the first Sunday to have anything ready, and I'm too far away from the upcoming Sunday to be ready. So I'm in that middle ground going, Lord, have mercy. Like, I got to get up there and say something to your people. And, and so it doesn't mean I can just, you know, go golfing every day or, I don't know, sledding right now and just come up here and say whatever. So it's not, that's not the point. The point isn't, isn't, does what I do matter? The point is, is it the basis of my favor with God? And God isn't more pleased with me this afternoon if I do well and less pleased if I'm stumbling over my words or if I don't say something, you know, so clearly that you all go home and put it on Facebook for all the world to see? Or how many listens we get on YouTube or Facebook or on our web? Like, that's not the basis of God's love for me. And I've had to wrestle this week with how much I do gets wrapped up in how I view or think God views me. And when that's true, if I think what I do is how God views me, then I'm functionally living out the Judaizer's gospel. I can say it all day to Sunday that it's all grace alone. And on Thursday afternoon, I'm going, I better get my act together. That's the Judaizer gospel, that it's not just faith, but my works also. And so five points, we must never move on from the gospel. And I don't know what it's for you. I don't know what your Thursday afternoon is. But we all have them. And that's where we can't move on from the gospel. 
but preach the gospel to ourselves because that will drive us to cling to Jesus daily and glory in his cross. And that's where Paul turns next. As secondly, the mountain is climbed, the mountain climbed. Look at verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Okay? So here's Paul's argument. We can't climb the mountain that we have to climb. That, that must be climbed. You need righteousness to be counted righteous before God. And if we're left in the state that we're in, we're cursed. And Paul says both Jew and Gentile alike are cursed. Now, we don't have time this morning, but if you want to read Romans 2, that's where he gets at there. Romans 2 says that even though Gentiles weren't given the law, we're still guilty of sin, and so we'll perish apart from the law. And then the argument is Israel was given the law. They didn't do it, so they're going to be judged by the law. So whether apart from the law or judged by the law, we're both still sinners. All are guilty and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3. And we're under a curse. And so again, we're confronted with the main question and issue of Galatians. How does God save sinners? How are the guilty counted righteous? Is it faith and works? Is it works? Or is it faith alone? Hearing with faith. Justification by faith. He says it all sorts of ways till, till he gets to this point. And he says we can't earn or work our way back to God. God has to come save us. We can't do it. God has to do it. And so he just kicks off. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And Jesus bought back sinners from the debt of death their sin deserves. And he did so by becoming a curse for us as he hung on the cross. And Paul then quotes again from Deuteronomy, this time chapter 21, showing that sinners are freed from sin's curse, not by God just waving his hand and making it magically disappear, not by making us earn it or saying, okay, now you've got to really be sorry. Really, really be sorry. Are you really, really, really sorry? You've got to mean it. None of that. He doesn't just send it away. He sends his son to bear it himself upon the cross. That's how he gets rid of this curse. By sending his own son to bear it himself on the cross. And the reason I think Paul just jumps right into the gospel in verse 13 without any connecting points or verbs or words or even any therefores or so that, he just goes, Christ! Because it's so amazing when you remember verse 12. The one who does them, God's law, shall live by them. What that means is Jesus actually did it. He should live. He doesn't deserve to die. Sin's curse shouldn't come anywhere near him. He did it. He did it perfectly, personally, perpetually. The one who does God's law shall live by them. Jesus was the only one who kept God's law perfectly and perfect, perpetually. What we could not do, Jesus did. But rather than life, and the life that was his, he set it aside. He gave it up. 
He gave it to us by becoming the perfect substitute himself for sinners. What he did is ours by faith. And what is ours, he took upon himself and became cursed for us. That's glorious. He, he, because he didn't deserve it. That's verse 12. In our place, Jesus took our curse and shed his blood to pay the ransom price for our sins. I like most of you. I love some of you. I'm just kidding. I love you all. But not enough to shed my blood for you. I'm sorry. I'm just a tad selfish still. The Lord's working on me. Maybe one day. Probably not, but maybe one day. But that's the whole point. For a righteous man, someone may die. For the unrighteous? And not just unrighteous against others, but the ones who sinned against him, hated him, rebelled against him. He came to them and his very own did not know him, but rejected him. And he still stood in our place and shed his own blood to pay the ransom price for our sins. And that substitution is at the heart of Galatians. And we can't, we can't lose this. There are many theologians, even evangelical theologians today, shifting the heart of the gospel away from substitution. It's not the only thing, no. It is the heart. And when you shift the center, you lose this. You lose the gospel. You do. If you start aiming for something that's not the center of it, you're not going to get the center of it. That doesn't mean other things don't matter. It means this is the heart. And when you veer from substitutionary atonement as the center of the gospel, you do so at your own peril and the peril of everyone else who follows you. And that's Paul's point in verses 13 and 14. It's the proof that substitutionary atonement is the heart of the gospel. If Christ isn't counted in your place condemned, you will never be counted righteous before God. No matter what other theories of atonement may be true, this is the heart of it. If Christ doesn't take your curse, you're cursed. Yeah. Yeah. And what's even more, like if this couldn't get more glorious, what makes this even more glorious is that this amazing redemption and substitution is yours all by grace. You don't have to do anything. Yeah. Are you hearing? Is God giving you ears to hear and eyes to see his glory? If he is, he gives you faith. It's all yours free, freely and fully, all by grace through faith. That's the point of the us. Who is the us that Christ redeems? Paul, Jewish, us, not. But who is the us? He says we're both redeemed this way. Those who've heard the gospel with faith, that's who Christ redeems. Those who've heard the gospel with faith, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your gender, no matter if you eat bacon, no matter if you're uncircumcised, no matter what you do, what you didn't do, what you could not do, no matter nothing. God's blessing flows to sinners not by works of the law, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Because it's Jesus who redeems sinners from the curse of the law. Because of what he did. Because he became a curse for them. 
And that's the point of the word, or excuse me, that's the point of verse 14. Alone. It's alone. Jesus secures through his becoming a curse on our behalf, in our place. Jesus secures the blessing of Abraham, the promised Holy Spirit, through his redeeming work on the cross by becoming a curse for us. So remember, I know, I know we're taking chunks of Galatians here, but just remember the flow of Paul's argument. He came, he left. Judaizers came, preached a false gospel. He, storms, he sends this letter back to fix it. And he says, you remember at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, you got off, you, you, you veered off the path. When? When you took your eyes off Jesus. It was before you that Jesus Christ was placarded, billboarded, as, as crucified. You remember that? That's what he's doing again. He's not saying you got to get it right up here. He's not laying down a theological exam for them to take at the end of this. He's saying, the way out of this is to set your eyes on Jesus, to look to Jesus, to remember who Jesus is and what he's done. He's billboarding Jesus Christ again as the answer to the Galatian issue. Who is Jesus and what has he done? That's the question. Jesus is the substitutionary, sacrificial, and sufficient Savior. You need all three. If he's not sufficient, then it doesn't matter if, it's, if he substitute himself for you or sacrifice. If it's not sufficient. But there needs to be a sacrifice. He must redeem. He must pay the ransom price. And you can't do it, so you need someone to do it for you. You need all three. But because Jesus is all three, substitutionary and sacrificial and sufficient Savior, you know what that means? There's nothing left for you to do. <laughs> That's the answer... When you, you, all these weird questions, well, what about, what about, what about? You know, like when, um, you, you know, like when you're raising young kids, you got to give them a thousand rules because they don't really get the principles yet. But you're teaching the principles through the rules. But then there comes that thousand and one moment where they're like, well, dad never told me I couldn't stick this up my nose, you know? <laughs> but once you grow up, there's the principles, right? The, the, Paul is teaching us something about how to walk, walk with Jesus in the Holy Spirit in our age. It doesn't matter what what if gets presented to you. Paul's teaching you the answer is look to Jesus. The answer is in him. If it has something to do with substitution or, or what is demanded, well, he was in my place. If there's something left, like if there's some guilt or sin, when, when that comes about, you're like, he's the sacrifice. And if you, if you wonder, well, if there's anything left, must I do? Do I not feel, am I not feeling sorrow, sorrowful enough? Have I not repented of this? Have I forgot something? Have I not done this? Have I, is he sufficient? Paul's answer in every point throughout a, most of his uh, pastoral letters is the gospel. No matter what issue they face, he constantly, throughout his letters, takes people back to Jesus. And that's what he does here. He's like, I billboarded Jesus before, now I'm going to do it again. He is substitutionary, sacrificial, and sufficient Savior. So there's nothing left for sinners to do but to receive the blessing through faith. And if you add anything to Jesus' person and work, you're actually robbing him of the glory he alone is worthy of. That's why we read Revelation 5 earlier in the service. 
myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, voices falling on their faces, worthy. That, That sums it up. Jesus, he's not even hoping this thing goes on. It's gone on far longer than it should have already. I got a little bit left, sorry. But, but he's not saying, well, you didn't, you didn't worship. Wor- one word is enough. Word, there's nothing left to say. It's not about what we do or what we could do or don't do. It's all about him. We're redeemed in Jesus alone. He's redeemed us. He's delivered us from this present evil age. And he delivers us into this blessing that he's holding out. Justification, eternal life, the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So two things as we close. First of all, you must answer what kind of person you are. What kind of person are you? Are you relying on yourself, your merits, your achievements, are you relying on Jesus and his cross? What kind of person are you? What kind of relying person are you? And it is a matter of life and death, the answer to that question, because one is the way of life and the other is the way of death. And so if you're not relying on the cross, may you have eyes to see the glory of Jesus today and turn to him in faith. And brothers and sisters, what kind of person are you? What kind of person are you? Remember, Paul is asking this of the church. He's not asking this of people who haven't heard the gospel. He's asking this of the church. What kind of person are you? And we can ask it in the way he asks it in, uh, in verse 3. Having begun by the Holy Spirit, all by grace, through God's power, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Having begun by the power of the Spirit, are you now going to do it yourself? Are you a man or woman of faith or of works? And that's not just a question for the first day of the Christian life. It's a question for every day of the Christian life. It's a question that helps us get the order right every day. And, I, and I've, I told you I've been preaching this to myself all week long because I've been struggling with this myself all week long. And I found two words very helpful. Two words very helpful. One is for and the other is from. For and from. Because Jesus climbed the mountain that was unclimbable for me, and because he took the penalty I deserved for not climbing that mountain, and by faith alone gave me all he deserved for climbing it, I no longer live for God's blessing, but from it. And that changes everything. I no longer live for God's blessing, but from God's blessing. I no longer have to live based on my performance or abilities to earn or keep God's blessing. But because of Jesus, I live from God's blessing that was freely and fully given to me. And that does change everything. I don't know if you're like Alex Honnold, but if you are, living from God's blessing rather than for it, pulls you out of the bottomless pit of self-loathing. For you're no longer living for love, but from it. The briefest moments that he experienced of joy and satisfaction from free soloing a mountain, that's nothing compared 
to the joy that comes from being able to rest. Rest. That's another word that I've tried to live out this week. Am I living for rest or from it? (laughs) It, it, This is a rest that comes from only relying on the cross. If there's nothing left for me to do to earn it or have it or receive it, then I can live from it. (laughs) I'm resting from my labors, not relying on me, but I get to enjoy the reliance of Jesus and what that means for me. I don't know. The rest of this, it's all, this is the end, really, but I keep keep saying that. But I've been trying to figure out ways to say it, and I I just can't, really. Because think of it in the way Paul elsewhere says it. He goes, he's raised you from death to life and given you every blessing in the heavenly places. That's yours. Now, you can try to live for it, but it's already yours. And you can then, on the other hand, push the pendulum so far the other way and not think about it at all and say, well, nothing I do matters. But then you're not also living from what is yours. That's like saying, I got a mansion, but I'm going to live over here. You know, because I'm never going to go that way. It's already mine. And, you know, you're like, well, why don't you go over there and enjoy that big pool, you know, or whatever it is. I don't know. What's wrong with you? (laughs) That's what you've been raised from death to life, not to live for his favor or to pay him back. Some of you are trying to pay God back for saving you. You won't say it, but that's how you, that's how you view your walk with him. And that's how you view him viewing you and your life. Like, I gotta pay him back. <laughs> but you, but he raised you to sit with him in the heavenly places. It is, you are sitting in this room, but in another way, you're not. You're, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You've been hidden with him in God. That's yours. And, and there's some of you in this room who are living for that, not from it. But this is a seat that can never be taken away from you. And that's why we're going to come to this table in a moment. Because you're going to get a piece of bread and a tad of juice <laughs> handed to you. In the same way that Paul is saying the gospel came to you. You didn't do anything. You didn't even come up and get it. It's being passed to you. That's what, have, you, have you ever thought about, have you been to a place where, they, where you come up and get it? You know one of the reasons why we don't do that? Because God doesn't even do it all 99.999% of the time and then make you go the last 0.1% to come up and get it. Maybe you've never thought, maybe you just thought it was easier and efficient. It's really not efficient. But it's, it's a picture of the gospel. It came to you. You get to sit and enjoy it. And that can never be taken away from you. Even if you fail to live from <laughs> and, and live for, we're going to stumble through this. But even that can't take it away. You know why? Because it never depended on you in the first place. From. From, not for. And before rooted 
revolts on me, I should probably lay on this sucker. From, not for. Because Christ redeems you already. So live in the glory of that, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. So Father, we, we, want, to, we want this more. We want the power and presence of your Holy Spirit freeing us from self-sufficiency so that we cling to Jesus and not at any point, however small, our own works. And we want to glory in that. And we also realize that this helps us with our neighbors and the nations around us because so many are living for achievement. But here is freedom and rest and joy and hope and love. And so I pray today that as we turn uh, to the table and to these elements, that we don't taste juice and bread, but we taste love and we taste rest, rest from our labors of having to earn and enjoy the gift, the blessing of knowing you and Jesus Christ whom you sent. So in these moments, help us to turn away from self-sufficiency. Reveal to us the ways that we still are relying on self. And help us to turn from them and become more and more, by your grace, people who rely on the cross alone, we pray. Amen.